Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. We're continuing our look at the book of Jonah. Jonah being one of the 12 minor prophets that concludes the Hebrew Old Testament. And we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 today of this short prophetic book that isn't the story of a prophecy so much as it is the story of a prophet. Carrie Livegreen is a name for many that is not a household name, particularly if you were born after 1980. However, his music and his influence is far more well-known than his name. Carrie Livegreen wrote well-known songs like Lamplight Symphony, Miracles Out of Nowhere, Point of No Return, and Dust in the Wind. But in 1975, Livegreen late one night penned quickly the lyrics to one song that would become the group's greatest hit, and even to this day, typically finds itself in the top five of classic rock songs ever played. The song was titled Carry On Wayward Son, and the band was from Topeka, and the band was called Kansas. In the song, we take the journey of a man who works tirelessly to be a man of purpose, a man of victory, a man who is in search of lasting peace, but he keeps coming up short because he never turns to the true source of meaning and reason, which in the song is some unnamed higher power that is never fully mentioned. This was 1975, and there was a lot going on. And one stanza of the lyrics read, One read, Once I rose above the noise and confusion, just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion. I was soaring ever higher, but I flew too high. Though my eyes could see, I still was a blind man. Though my mind could think, I still was a madman. I hear the voices when I'm dreaming. I can hear them say, Carry on, my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. A wayward son is someone who is willfully and deliberately turning away from what he knows to be right. There's an intentional disobedience. And Kerry lived his life as a wayward son, running from God for many, many years. But his songs, his lyrics, often reflected this spiritual journey that he thought that he was on as God kept pursuing him and kept pursuing him until finally, in 1979, four years after he wrote this song, Wayward Son, at 3 a.m. in the morning in a hotel room, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, Jonah was a wayward son of the one true God, a wayward prophet, if you will, who had ran from God's call and had tried to get as far away from the Lord as possible. We've covered two chapters already, and in Jonah 1, God had told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach a message of judgment, to call out against a city so that they would have a chance to repent. But Jonah doesn't like this idea. He doesn't like the grace that God is extending towards the Ninevites. And so he tries to run as far away as Tarshish, but a storm comes and Jonah is thrown into the sea while the sailors on the ship have a deathbed conversion experience and turn to the one true God. While floating in the dark waters, God commands a great fish to swallow Jonah as an unlikely and unusual act of grace. And Jonah stays in this creature for three days and three nights. Now in Jonah 2... After three days of stewing in this big fish, Jonah finally decides to pray. 
after three days, he decides to pray. Now, he makes a lot of progress in his relationship with God, and we see that reflected in his prayer. There's some humility, there's some contrition, there's some repentance. And we read in Jonah 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, we mentioned this last Sunday, but certainly the author of Jonah is doing something humorous here showing that this sea creature listened better to the command of the Lord than what Jonah did. But there's also another important truth. Creation obeys God. We often think that the authorities and powers on this earth, whether it be political, military, corporate, or what have you, is capable of somehow thwarting God's will and stifling God's kingdom. Now, we may not say that out loud, of course, but That would seem irreverent and that would seem uncouth, but we show it in our worry and our anxiousness about the world. And now I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be concerned about world events. Certainly we should, and we should diligently pray and work to advance God's kingdom and let God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we do need to be reminded that God is sovereign, a big, beautiful world word that tells us that he is in complete control that nothing escapes his notice, and the kingdoms of this world will one day give way to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I look forward to that day, and I know that you do as well. And this brings us to today's text, which is Jonah chapter 3. Now, Jonah in this chapter will finally do part of what God asked him to do, but he still isn't happy about it. Sometimes we'll use the phrase when we're angry or finding someone close to us very difficult, we'll say, you know, I love you, but I don't really like you right now. And that's the impression that I'm getting from Jonah here as we read from this scripture, his impression and his relationship with God. I firmly believe that Jonah loves God, that even though he was a wayward son, he still most certainly is a son of God here, a child of God a redeemed person. He loves God, but he still doesn't like what God is asking him to do. And though more subtle, this does pop out in Jonah chapter 3. So I hope that you'll join me in reading God's word here. This is Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word, of the, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You might remember me saying as we started this study of the book of Jonah that the author uses all types of literary devices to get the point across in a masterful way regarding this rebellious prophet that is contrasted with the abounding love of God. And Jonah 3 is an amazing literary parallel to the beginning of the book of Jonah. In Jonah 1 and 2, chapters 1 of 2, you have the story of Jonah and the great sea. In Jonah 3 and 4, you have the story of Jonah and the great city. Now, notice some of the parallels, and then we'll discuss the point the author is making under God's inspiration here. God commissions Jonah, God hears Jonah, God spares the people of Nineveh, and then at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah 4, God is going to reprove or really rebuke Jonah for his attitude. But if you had your Bible open where you could easily flip back and forth the pages between Jonah 1 and Jonah 3, you would see some amazing parallels, almost word for word. Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah 3.1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, going to Nineveh. Jonah 1.2, Jonah 3.2 is the message that God wants him to proclaim. Jonah 1.3 is Jonah's response where he runs from God and flees from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 3.3 is that Jonah arises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In Jonah 1.4, God brings about a warning to Jonah through this tempestuous storm that comes upon the sea. And in Jonah 3.4, Jonah himself brings the warning to the people of Nineveh, the warning from the Lord that the Nineveh will be overthrown. In Jonah 1.5, we have the response of the unbelieving sailors, the pagan response. They call out to their gods to save them while Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And then in Jonah 3.5, we see the response of the Ninevites is that they turn and that they believe God. In Jonah 1.7, the way that the unbelievers respond is better than Jonah is responding to God. And they determine that Jonah is the source of evil that is causing this calamity. In Jonah 3, 7, once again, their response is better. But they themselves, the Ninevites, determine that they're the source of evil and they repent and turn to God. And then finally, in Jonah 2, we see how God brings grace through the fish. And in Jonah 4, which we're not covering today, God is going to bring grace through a plant that he will have grow to provide Jonah some shade. Now, these are the major parallels throughout the story, so let's dive in specifically to Jonah 3, where the word of the Lord comes to Jonah this second time. Jonah had done all that he could possibly do to avoid the call of God, and yet God did not cast Jonah away. Even though he was cast into the sea, he isn't permanently cast away from the presence of God, nor does God, because of Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh, nor does God cast away the Ninevite people. In fact, unbelievers are saved, and they receive salvation and redemption through the one true God, despite Jonah's disobedience. Now, God was under no obligation to save Jonah or the Ninevites, but he does it out of his mercy and he does it out of his grace. And so having looked at the parallels of Jonah 1 and 3, we see again almost word for word God repeat himself and the situations repeat, but this time with a different outcome. God is giving Jonah a second chance. 
excuse me, you know, I've often heard people say that we serve a God of second chances. Aren't you glad you serve a God of second chances? Now, certainly, yes, I believe that. I agree. But I've also witnessed serving a God so abounding in love and mercy that we serve a God not only of second chances, but of third, fourth, and fifth chances. Certainly, I feel that way, and I'm sure some of you share that story as well. A God who pursues and chases us down to restore a relationship with us. God will not abandon those he loves, though it doesn't mean we won't reap the consequences of disobedience. God was determined to do the work through Jonah, so he didn't give up on this highly reluctant and rebellious prophet. God is committed to doing his work through Jonah. You know, I have to say I've been hard on Jonah for the first couple of messages, but I've tried to put myself in his shoes for the task that God has asked him to do and to have a little sympathy and empathy for Jonah here. Certainly, it seemed like an improbable, if not impossible, task what God was asking him to do, telling him to go to a wicked city, infamous for its idolatry, and single-handedly, as this lone prophet walked through its streets, walked through its alleys and byways, calling out their wickedness and calling them to repentance to a God that they did not know and a God that they did not worship. Rejection, persecution, and even death seemed likely. Would it not have seemed advantageous, we might think, to commission a study on how to best navigate the city logistically? Perhaps look at the most impressionable demographic groups. Do we need to talk to the young people here? Do we need to talk to the women, the men, the elderly? Who do we need to go to first here? Maybe we should make some flyers to distribute or hand out some muffins to take into the marketplace to kind of ease into these conversations with these people. But none of this happens, of course. God was asking one man to be obedient and to walk through the city and to preach to the people. And this is what he was told to do, preach to the people the message that I tell you. Instead of telling Jonah to cry out against Nineveh, God just tells Jonah to go there and wait for certain instructions. Now that perhaps can be irritating for us sometimes, but God certainly operates in that way, expecting obedience and not giving us the entire plan at the very first point. So we find here in verse 3 that Jonah goes to Nineveh. He arose and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He's learned his lesson, so to speak, having resisting God and running from God as both a futile and counterproductive effort. And so now he obeys the call of God and he goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, we read, was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in its extent. Certainly what this means is that it would have taken Jonah three days to kind of go into all the nooks and crannies, if you will, of Nineveh or into the greater Nineveh area, the metropolitan area around the city to proclaim this message. And this was the message that Jonah had. Forty days, forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we don't know what his entire message was, but certainly this seemed to be the emphasis. And that word overthrown that Jonah is using here is a word applied to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with that story in the book of Genesis where God utterly destroys these two cities, so was the threat to Nineveh. But the word overthrown is also an interesting word. It's kind of this double entendre meaning 
that it is used intentionally because as the name implies, it means two things here. Overthrown is could be done in destruction and in, in completely wiping out this city, or God could overthrow the wickedness and the evil there, and they could be overthrown by God's grace through redemption. It's a very interesting word here. And the response of the people is something that none of us would have expected if you're reading this story with fresh eyes. The people repent. Now, the word repentance isn't in this passage, but we see it in full force in what these people do. The people of Nineveh believed God. Repentance begins with believing God, the Word of God, and its transforming power. You know, in the Bible, when we hear the Word of the Lord, the Word of God, it can mean direct words that God speaks to His servants, or it can mean the Word of God as Scriptures, which we have in the Bible. And I hope at some point to do some messages on the Bible someday and how God orchestrated the development and the canon of His Scripture. But for now, we can know as we believe Him in His Word that his word has the power to transform our lives as he wills, and he uses the inspired scripture to do that. And so this is a beautiful word that connects back to the story that the Jews would have been very familiar with, and this is the story of Abraham when we read that the Ninevites believed the word of God. Abraham, if you remember that great Israelite patriarch, really the the founder of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, we read in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And again, this comes from Genesis and it's reiterated all throughout the Bible and the New Testament, really becoming a keystone, linchpin verse in all of Scripture that belief, faith in God is what brings salvation, not our own efforts and not our own actions. The doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, trusting in God and surrendering our life to Him. And so from the highest levels to the lowest levels, the Ninevites repent and they put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, if you've read through parts of the Bible, you've probably come across that phrase about wearing sackcloth and ashes. Now, What does this mean? Culturally, it's an odd thing. So for us Westerners, we would ask the question, why? Well, it was an outward way to express an inward action. The sackcloth was typically made of black goat's hair, and it was very rough and very coarse, and it was very uncomfortable to wear, showing the uncomfortable situation of recognizing one's own sin and repenting. And the ashes showed desolation. So they would take ashes and they would put it all through their hair and they would put it on their face and they would even sit in ashes to show destruction and to show, once again, desolation. And they even repented on behalf of their animals, dressing their animals in sackcloth and ashes. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that animals repented, but it was a way of saying in a uh, dramatic fashion that there was a total, complete repentance, 360 degrees, all the way around. Now, you've heard me say it before, and you, like myself, have likely encountered this, that one of the greatest barriers for non-believers is coming to terms with the reality 
of sin, that we are fallen, that we are broken, and that we need redemption. And many modern expressions of repentance involves making excuses and justifying reasons for bad behavior, for sin, and of course, this is not repentance at all. The modern conscience, sociology, psychology wants us to reinterpret human behavior and brokenness as being sick rather than being sinful. And as a result, we never address the root cause, which is a spiritual one. We are great sinners in need of a great Savior, and only the Lord Jesus Christ can save. And so the king of Nineveh says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger? Some translations render this phrase, Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will turn from his fierce anger. There was a recognition that God would save them, that God would forgive because of his mercy and grace, not because of what we say or what we do or some pleasing combination of actions that somehow makes God happy, but that it is totally in the sovereignty of God to forgive. And these people had expressed repentance. Jonah had expressed repentance while in the great fish. And so Jonah, perhaps for the first time, had seen his own need for God. Being a repentant sinner, as Jonah was, at least partially, being a repentant sinner didn't disqualify Jonah from preaching repentance. On the contrary, it made his preaching all the more effective. And friends, when you and I truly recognize the deepness of our sin the deepness of our brokenness, and see that in light of the amazing grace of God. We can't help but tell other people about him. And so God's response is this to their repentance. God saw their works and he relented. He honored Nineveh's repentance. Even though their sin was reason enough for an outpouring of judgment, he forgave them. And friends, in the cross of Jesus, we see that the justice of God and that all the sin was paid for by Jesus and we also see the mercy of God and that we are imputed with that righteous act that Jesus accomplished on the cross as his righteousness is given to you and to me. It's interesting that when Jonah preached to Nineveh, he only preached the message of judgment, not grace, or at least it's not recorded for us. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God showed Jonah, and God showed the Ninevites his love and his grace. And God shows us something wonderful here that should be both sobering and encouraging for us individually and as a nation, that he acts consistently with his word. In the prophet Jeremiah, God says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull it down, and destroy it, if that nation whom I have spoken to turns from evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. God is a holy God that will bring judgment, but he also offers grace when we repent and turn from our sins. Jonah's preaching was like all warnings of judgment. It was an invitation to seek God's grace, to seek God's favor, and to repent and avoid the judgment that the holy God would provide. So what are some timeless takeaways that we can have here as we finish up this study of Jonah chapter 3? 
Well, first of all, we have the pursuing God. I'm not going to share the poem today, but perhaps later, but Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, the hound of a dog being a dog, saying that God is like a hound that pursues us and chases us down to get us into a loving relationship with him. And once again, we see here that it is not mankind that pursues God. Rather, it is the opposite, God pursuing us. It's been appropriately said that basic religion is man reaching up to God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is God reaching down to man. And this is true in the story of Jonah. The Ninevites, unaware, unconcerned, and completely apathetic to the one true God, and yet God pursues them and sends them a prophet to preach to bring about repentance and salvation. And finally, we see how faithfulness adds up one small step at a time. One small step at a time. I heard a story that was shared by Michael Ramsden the other day. He's the author at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And he shares a story about a colleague of his named John Bechtel. So I want to give him credit for this story. But John Bechtel grew up as the son of a missionary family in China. And during the Great Purge, China removed all the Christian missionaries and removed them in the 1960s, and they had to take refuge in Hong Kong. And so years later, as they were there, as they had been there living in Hong Kong, the Lord laid it on John Bechtel's heart to start an orphanage, a Christian camp of sorts. And one day he was walking through a particular part of Hong Kong, and he discovered an ideal property that had been a former school with a for sale sign outside. So he went about contacting everyone he knew, to try to raise the money to buy the property there in Hong Kong, but no one was interested. But an American friend was there that had come to visit him, and this friend heard about John's dream and invited him to the United States to do a preaching tour where he could tell the story and try to raise the money that was needed to purchase this school. So John did. He came to America, and he preached uh, for a month in the United States, and he returned to Hong Kong uh, to continue his ministry there, and about a month later, he received a letter from his American friend with a couple of envelopes enclosed, and his friend's letter just said, Dear John, you know, I'm sorry, this didn't quite work out like we had expected. We were not able to raise the money that we had hoped of all of the churches that you preached in, and that everyone that you met, we've only received one gift, and this gift is in the other envelope. So he put down his friend's letter and he began to open the other envelope. And in this second envelope, he found a single dollar, a one dollar bill, and a note from a girl saying, Dear Pastor Bechtel, here is my ice cream money for two weeks. Please use this one dollar to buy the camp. And it was signed by a young little girl about 12 years old named Melinda Holmes. John was heartbroken and devastated. But as he prayed about it, not quite knowing what to do, his wife approached him and said, John, do what the little girl has asked you to do. Go by the school for one dollar. So John went to the caretaker of the building there in Hong Kong and said, I would like to make an official offer, and I would like for you to pass along this offer to the owners of the building for me to purchase it. And he handed the caretaker the note from the girl with the one dollar bill in it, and the caretaker laughed and threw it back at John. Now, John insisted that it was a legitimate offer, and according to Hong Kong law, it had to be passed along to the owners. Otherwise, 
John was going to take him to court. So the caretaker picked it up and promised to pass it on to the owners of the property. One week later, John was contacted by the property owners, and they told him, we've read this little girl's letter, and we are so touched by her words that we'll agree to sell this property to you, this building, for one dollar. Now that camp grew into a vibrant Christian ministry and a camp for children across Hong Kong. And as of today, well over one million children have been through that camp. But the story isn't quite over yet. Later in life, John Beckel happened to be at a church where he was telling this story in the United States. And after it was over and everyone was leaving and going into the parking lot to get into their vehicles to leave, a young woman came up to him and said, Pastor Bechtel, I was that little girl. My name is Melinda Holmes. She had been only around 12 years old when she sent John the letter, and she was now in her early 30s, and she had no idea what had happened to her letter or her dollar bill after she had sent it. She had never heard back. So John asked Melinda, would you like to go over to Hong Kong and see what has happened there? And she said yes. And so as people were leaving the church and again heading into the parking lot, John ran outside and asked everyone to come back into the church. They come back into the church and he said, lock the doors, we're going to take a second offering. So they did and they raised enough money to fly Melinda Holmes over to see the camp that her single dollar bill had purchased decades earlier. Melinda walked through the camp seeing one prophet and one message and that one day what had changed the lives of so many people. God had done the same thing with Jonah. One prophet, one day, one message in a great city of hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh and yet God brought about salvation. Our obedience to God, no matter how small, has a great and eternal impact. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, it may not be likely that you will call us to walk single-handedly into a large city and proclaim a message of judgment to wicked people, but you do call us to be salt and light where you have put us for such a time as this. Our first mission field is our home with our wives, our husbands, our children, our families, and then wherever else you have placed us, jobs, schools, college, wherever it is that you have put us. And dear God, we trust in your word that it will go out and we ask you, God the Holy Spirit, to transform lives for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.